Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas, Makalua, the main team, Mega Bears fan. Yeah. Do we not have a guest? This we do time? not, because I'm very bad at getting guests, apparently. Not that I didn't try, but I did not find one. Welcome to episode 333 of the Polycast. We are getting very close to one-third of a thousand episodes, oh my goodness. Today we have me, Candace Albinus, and then we've got Makalua. If I'm doing the math right, technically this is, or unless we're counting 3334 because we went around up one? Yes. And the me and team? That's not how math works. What, what, what? What, what? No, Phil. And Mega Bears fan. The AI is griefing me now. Is it now? Yeah, it's a new hey, feature. Yo. A new feature, huh? <laughs> a new feature? New. Yeah, 333 times 3 does not get you to 1,000. Not yet. Yeah, it'll be 999. One more. One more. <laughs> so we have to have three, we have to have episode multi-333 and then have point three of another episode. Yeah. So when we're a third of the way of through three, 334, then we're a third of 1,000. Or just Which make an 80-minute episode? Pretty difficult to estimate with the editing, but yeah, I, I guess that's true. I'm Whenever sure we we're technically together. a third of the way through. I'm sure we could put together a third of an episode with just the blooper reel content. Um, I haven't been keeping blooper reel content like nope. Dan did because I'm not very good at it yet, but we'll get there. Oh, that's awesome. That means we can screw up and he won't have it documented with the same degree well, of easily what, what, findable. <laughs> what tends to happen is if you screw up and it's particularly hilarious, I'll just leave it in as it is. Just cut out the extra fluff around it. Okay. No more blackmail. Woohoo. <laughs> <laughs> but Blackmailer is a fun role in the town of Salem. This is just in a town of Salem podcast. Oh, right. Anyway, speaking of things that are going to be coming soon, apparently we will be getting a port of Rise and Fall and Gathering Storm on the Switch at some point in the hopefully not too distant future. Aspire, right? That's how you pronounce that, right? Not Asper, but Aspire. Put up an article in Nintendo Everything saying that it is in their pipeline, but they did not offer any concrete or even approximate release dates that I'm aware of. It's not in the article, definitely. Yeah, not in this one. Maybe in some other article or official statement. But mostly the article is just a summary of the features in the two different expansions. So I'm sure everybody listening already knows most of that, and we don't need to go over that again. No. But if you are playing Civ 6 on the Switch, and I know at least one person who has it on iPad. Uh, I don't know if I know anyone who has it on the Switch. I do. But Oh, well, okay. There, apparently I do know someone then. <laughs> so if you have Civ 6 on the Switch, as Canis does, then eventually you will get both expansions. I don't know if they're going to be free. I doubt it. Oh, yeah, no. Probably not. Well, the other DLC is actually built into Civ 6 on the Switch. All the pre-expansion DLC. Yeah, the Switch was kind of like a gold edition or something of the the game, so to speak, with all the DLC included. But I imagine the expansions Switch players will have to pay for. I don't know how expansions work on the Switch. I assume it's the same as all the other consoles. You just download it. Probably just DLC, because mine is a digital copy anyway. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I haven't played much of my Switch, so I don't really know a lot of the ins and outs of how it works, other than that it's really weird to set up the controllers because one controller becomes two controllers and sometimes that can be a real pain in the butt when uh, trying to get a bunch of people together to play Smash. It's hard for us old fogies to work out this kind of stuff. 
the young kids that we were with were having trouble with it too so it may just be unintuitive design i don't know but i'm perfectly willing to chalk it up to me being old i've never played on this switch because they just don't well, i don't do a lot of console gaming anymore in the first place and there's no exclusives i really care about but i didn't have trouble with the nintendo's other control schemes even when they got weird so i don't know maybe it's basically I, like a Wiimote. It's just a little different. Like the shooting and a lot more down. powerful. It's about on par, at least with what a PS3. Okay. In terms of power wise, yes. so uh, it's a pretty good little console. I mean, what I've played from it, I've been pretty impressed with. I did buy uh, Breath of the Wild, but I have yet to get around to playing it. I played, it would have to be decent to run Civ Six. I played Let's Go Eevee, and I was very annoyed by that. But it might just be because I was expecting a Pokemon game, and I got Pokemon Go. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a Pokemon Lite. I think I read recently that Nintendo did announce that they are making a full Pokemon game for the Switch. Well, they announced some... that two years ago, and then they just recently announced what the name of it is and when it's coming out. Oh, okay. There was a lot of fan squeeing about that, myself included. Yeah, I'm sure if legit Pokemon game comes out, my, uh, my girlfriend and kid will be all over playing that. Now, is this part of the reason the UI is terrible for a computer on uh, Civ 6? Is that they're trying to make it work with, like, controllers well not just controllers but also touch screens yeah that's pretty much what we're what we're going with somebody mentioned that a while back and then it all suddenly made sense as to why everything is so pictorial i doubt that it was designed for controller or console play in mind because that was a port that was done well over a year later so yeah but if they're working with touchscreen then it would be very similar it was definitely translating that it was definitely built with touchscreen in mind oh yeah because so, even you know Windows 10, you can have touchscreen support just on the OS, regardless of whether you're on a tablet. So that was probably a design consideration as well. And the thing about touchscreens is once you have something set up for touchscreens, it's much, much easier to port it to anything with a controller or anything else that uses uh, that kind of interface. I guess it doesn't bother me that much, except for that they didn't. Like, it's not irreconcilable. You could just add hotkeys and that would work, especially if you had bindable hotkeys. There's some hotkeys. Not many, though. I, yeah. But I mean, like, bindable hotkeys. So, like, basically anything you click on, you can bind. That would solve most of the issues with the UI, aside from the the basic lack of accuracy, which really doesn't matter, your input methodology. That's just poor implementation by the developers. But when it comes to, like, number of inputs and stuff, if you had bindable hotkeys for most or every task, it would pretty well solve any issues with using touchscreen or whatever else in addition. I do have to say that I went back and was playing Civ Five very briefly, and I do really like that there are a lot more pictures and icons for certain things. Like, for instance, I was looking at Civ V's Great Works screen, where there's just like five different icons that represent everything. And I'm like, oh, Civ Six's Great Works screen is nice that it actually shows you a picture of the thing instead yeah. of just an icon. So There's nothing know, wrong with that. That's a small improvement. There's certainly it, nothing wrong with that, because it doesn't preclude good practices. They're just not doing the good practices. Right. Yeah, the, the fact that it's very pictographic is not inherently a bad thing. It's just that not the like menus and widgets and stuff themselves are not very great. Because one other thing that I noticed in Civ 5 that I miss is when you go to the diplomacy screen, it lists all the civs and all the resources that they have available to trade. I don't think there's a screen like that anywhere in Civ 6. There's a resource monitor that exists now, but you can't get to it from the Diplo screen. Ugh. I also noticed that when I'm in the diplomacy screen, it doesn't bother to tell me how much uh, diplomatic favor I have. So that if seems I want to, awkward. If I want to trade some diplomatic favor, I've got to like go into the little 
World Congress screen, which is like right there. So it's not like I have to exit the screen and go somewhere else. I just have to toggle the pages. But still, it should just be on both screens. What about the IBT stuff on there? AI's offering deals. Well, there's some bugs in that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. There, there's a pretty major bug, apparently. It doesn't look like we're going to be covering today. Yeah, I, I didn't put it on there because I didn't want to publicize it. But yes, there is a very big bug. <laughs> okay, it's fine. A, it's a good video, though. It's very uh, entertaining. Yeah, that's true. I mean, he makes entertaining videos in general. I, I like yeah. the prison architect one where he just made a lumber yard, basically. <laughs> in prison yeah, architect. He, he got a subscription from me. <laughs> All right. Well, since we're going to talk about it anyway, let's just talk about this bug. Oh. Let's see. Where can I find the list uh, so I can link it to people? Somebody who actually watched the video, please describe it. Okay. So Spiffing Brit is the one who made the video, and he stacked modifiers to the point where he could purchase units for zero gold as Mali. And he also found a way to trade with the AI at the same resource repeatedly, such that you keep making money off the deal. Basically, he, he could sell one unit of a strategic resource and then buy it back from the same AI at a lower price. Yeah, and just keep doing that until you drain out all their money. And right. But then you have way more money than balance would typically allow in Civ 6, so you can which do anything course, you want. And if you're course, buying like, units for nothing, I mean... <laughs> yeah, which of course he didn't need because all the units were free. I, yeah. I was trying to keep oh, track of the, the bonuses in my head, and I was a little bit confused because I only counted something like 85% discount, so I'm not sure where the, the last few came from. Maybe I added it up wrong. Well, if I could figure or are you factoring Mali itself? Yeah, it was something like 20% for Mali, and then I think 20% for democracy, and then 25% for a city-state, and then I think another 15 or 20% for the military academy, which is 20, 40, 65, 85, right? There was, there was one more thing, though. Is there a card for it? A policy card? Maybe. I don't remember there being a... Po- I remember there's a policy card for discounting unit upgrades. I don't remember there being a policy card for discounting unit purchases. This is why I hate Reddit. I cannot find this post. Yeah, finding stuff on Reddit can be a pain in the butt. I also get annoyed when, like, there's a post that's, like, two days old, but it's already closed. Oh, yeah. Fortunately, like, the rare time... Well, I, I don't... I'm not actually on Reddit rarely. I use it for a amount. But the subreddits I go to are, like, pretty low-key because there's not a lot of people who use them, like Dungeon Crawl PL and stuff, so that's always nice. They don't have awful moderation. And yeah, Spiffing Brit also specified that this exploit is also enabled in multiplayer. Yeah. So as long as there are AIs in the game in multiplayer, you can do this to the AIs and effectively have infinite gold, which you can then leverage against the other human players in multiplayer. That, that should probably be house rules. I, I'm not a big fan of house rules in general, but with such an, like an egregious bug where you're just going to trivialize the game, you probably Probably need to do that if you want to play a decent game. And in fairness, <laughs> the zero cost military units is late in the game, right? I mean, you need to have democracy in order oh, to, and all, to almost anybody can so. stack the modifiers in question. But right. that's assuming that someone doesn't just go and off that city state if it's becoming a problem. And you know. right, so in multiplayer, that might be a priority. Is oh, we just got to get rid of that city state. And I don't remember the name of the city state. I think yeah. it started with an N. It's really just the trade bug. If you have AIs in the game, that you yes, need to that iron is, out. That's an actual bug that I hope Axis will 
fix at some point. I don't remember if that was in the game before Gathering Storm or if it were a bug that was introduced by Gathering Storm. I would assume so because before we couldn't sell strategic resources in lump sum amounts. Yeah, but it's I hypothetically think that's possible. probably what introduced it. Yeah, but it's hypothetically possible that maybe you could have done it with resource, you know, 30 turn resources. Or you could have done it maybe by selling the relics back and forth all the time. It's some bug with how the AI is valuing the item. Like you would think there would just be a value for one unit of coal. He also specifically said that you have to be in the Renaissance or later. I, so I guess it doesn't work with horses and iron because maybe they're not valuable enough for whatever bug to take effect. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the reason for that specifically is, why or, you had to use coal and yeah, spoil Yeah, or, or maybe he just started later in the game because he wanted to get to democracy faster. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, no, for sure. The reason he modded the game, although all this stuff works in, in vanilla, but he modded the game because he wanted to test out what happens at uh, 100% climate change or 100% ice cap melting. That's right. Because <laughs> by default, the game only... Yeah, he couldn't get to it, yeah. Yeah, by default, the game only lets you go up to 85%. So he wanted to flood the world, basically, on purpose. And, and the game he was disappointed in his first run because he couldn't get to 100%. It was impossible. I, I have to say I am also a little disappointed that the global warming eventually just caps out and there's no further penalty for continuing to use fossil fuels. Speaking of that topic, the CO2 is calculated using the amount of resource you spend, obviously, and it is mentioned that the map size is effective and it also, like, what, what was the actual question in this? The first post from Funky Monkey, does anyone have an explanation for logic on how CO2 is used in the Gathering Summer expansion? Okay, is okay, okay. So, Basically, the issue is he has, like, two factories and he's wondering why he's the lead producer of CO2 when there's other sieves that have five or ten factories and apparently the reason is that units also produce co2 and apparently they produce a lot of it yeah, yeah. so in another thread someone only had like a handful of units in one factory and he was leading the world in co2 production and they're actually class global warming which is ridiculous like there's no industrialization in that world so that there shouldn't be global warming. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's I, very minimal it would be like it would be like our 1800s like early 1800s just like there's a factory out there and that's causing global warming already like Come on, man. It's the thing where I see where they're headed with the units doing CO2 because vehicle pollution is a big chunk of what we've got going on right now. But yeah, if you're in the 1800s, there weren't cars until the 1900s, really. Well, I was just using that as an example. The game doesn't translate to that one-to-one in terms of how attack prices. Yeah. Uh, If there's only like a factory in the world. Yeah. When you're at the very start of the Industrial Revolution, you're not going to have a bunch of vehicle pollution to add to your CO2 off of one factory. You use that like endgame tech. This world has never built stuff, basically. And in terms of emissions, the military is very little compared to civilian use. Yeah. It's just much less military than civilian. I was just going to say, I feel like the the military units consuming so many uh, or producing so much CO2 is more of like a a balance and strategy thing because both Rise and Fall and Gathering Storm were very big about trying to put in deterrence for just spamming a bunch of units and conquering everything. You know, we had the loyalty in Rise and Fall, and this is, I think, one mechanic along with the strategic resource supply 
that looks like it's intended to act as a cap on how many units you have. I'm not sure about that. I would I would agree with loyalty. Uh, loyalty is something you have to play around. There's actually some interesting decisions to be made there. But when it comes to this, you put up flood barriers and you can have a lot of military and largely ignore it. Like it's not just the penalty for you. It applies the penalty to everybody. Right. And if you settle in a way where flooding is less threatening to you than your opponents, it's actually a benefit to you to spam units. So I wouldn't treat it as a deterrent per se. Well, I'm not saying that's how it actually works. I'm saying I think that was part of the intent. Maybe. I I, like <laughs> I think the... that's even hard to conclude intent in this case because of the way like it so obviously doesn't disincentivize unit spam compared to something like loyalty. Even the quantified resources isn't that big a deal because all you got to do is build uh, military places and some harbors and you've got plenty. So. I did have a couple games where I could not get access to coal and iron and actually did see pikemen dominating battlefields in the medieval era. That really? Was, Over crossbows? I hadn't teched to machinery yet either, so the the pikemen were just wiping out my warriors, archers, and I characters. See. So I, I learned a lesson that I will no longer be ignoring spearmen in future games of Gathering Storm. Mm-hmm. Just to- Well, I would recommend, if you aren't going to have resources, I would definitely recommend the bottom path for machinery because they're so much more effective than spears. As a general and those rule. units stay good uh, as you upgrade them now. In fact, they don't need resources even as machine guns. And machine guns now have uh, the extra range. So that's not a bad unit path as a fallback. Yeah, is that a change? Machine guns that is a change. Range. Yeah, that's new to Gathering Storm that machine guns have two range by default rather than one. And that makes that unit path a lot better because if you boost machine guns with like, you, you turn them into an army and you put a great general on that, they're relevant all game long. You have to worry about air power if you're playing against somebody who uses air power. But uh, <laughs> if you're playing single player, you basically just have death machines. It's fine. If they have enough promotions, that is. You'll be doing I, lots of damage even to mech infantry with machine gun armies. Heck, I found that even an army of rangers is pretty boss against the AIs. Quick moving, quick shooting. Yeah, all the promotions you can get on the standard range line uh, between incendiaries and and the two shots uh, and the extra damage against land units, all that stuff put together. They start to really hurt if you're adding things like fascism and great generals onto them and armies. AI just doesn't make armies and give them promotions to an extent where they're competitive. So you can often two-shot things in the same era or even an era in front. Zulu does, but that's beside the point. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, okay. That's true. They do. Because <laughs> yeah, the AI actually gets access to that early and thinks about it a little bit. Zulu need much less investment to get there. So yeah, having units is a big contributor to CO2. And apparently map size caps how much for a one degree temperature increase. But it's a, it's a linear increase, even though the number of tiles on the map increase is not linear. So That might be the yeah. problem. That's a little weird. Yeah, if you're playing on a smaller than standard map, then you're going to get disproportionately high CO2 emissions. I thought it's the other way around. You get disproportionately high on large maps because the number of hexes is not increasing at the same rate well i know that they're not increasing at the same rate i don't know which one increases faster though although this is a hex not a square so yeah that that said it's also true that making a map huge it's not a linear thing in terms of winning the game by turn count either so there's something to be said like for not thinking about it too much, I guess. We need, I guess they need to add, uh, in, uh, just like having all victory types for every sieve, you have to add every map size for every sieve in the Hall of Fame because every map is different. Uh, yeah, I guess. Some of the new stuff formation you can see on the Hall of Fame is cool. So, like, even if you don't have a, like, a weird requirement for all this stuff, it would be interesting just to see uh, all the categories sortable. So a user on Sif Fanatics named Lee Duan 
Fitzsimmons, who is apparently a full-time cat lover, decided to spam a bunch of apostles and send them into enemy territory to get them killed with the martyr promotion in order to see every single relic that is in the game in a single game of Civ 6. It looks like this user has quite a few of them. I have no idea how many relics there actually are, but if you don't play religious play very often and you're curious what the heck these relics actually are, then check out this post, which is titled Kamikaze Apostles, Apostles. updated March 8th. Which is yesterday and, for us. And there's pictures of pretty much all of them, and some of them are actually pretty cool looking. Some that I've never heard of. Yeah, a lot of them I've never heard of or seen in the game. Also, I think this is more than one different game, because it says some of them are displayed in Mont Saint-Michel, but it's different cities sometimes. Is it? Oh, okay. Although some of the city names are pretty humorous, too. Sacred City of Elven Elven Pleasure. Yeah. The player could also just be moving the around because I don't think there's any restriction on moving relics like there is with moving themed great works. Well, what I mean is the the first one, the Holy Lance, is in Mont Saint Michel in Sweet Blue River Valley, and if you go to the last page, which has some others, there's okay. Mont Saint Michel in Blue Cheetah City. You could also rename the cities, I think, at any time, so that could be something yeah. too. That is true. But it looks like it's the same leaders in all the screenshots. So I know. just no, like it is, this idea. It's amusing. No, it is definitely two different games because the first screenshot with the Holy Lance has a different set of leaders than many of the later screenshots. Yeah, I was going to say, considering how the promotion cycle, you would might, probably have to do multiple games to get enough martyrs to test it out. Well, if you are if you buy, build Mont Saint-Michel, you, all your apostles get martyr. Some martyr? Okay. And if you play as Khmer, then all of your missionaries get it, even though the game doesn't bother to put an icon anywhere telling you which missionaries have them and which don't. Well, oh, geez. So yeah. if you built some missionaries before you got your prasats out, and then you get your prasat and start building missionaries, you're well, you got to remember which one was which because some of those are going to have martyr and some of them won't. And there's no icon because they didn't put the promotion icons on missionaries because they assumed that missionaries would never have promotions. And then they broke their own rules. And then they broke their own rules and didn't change the UI. Hopefully there's a mod for that. I can tell you right now that I did recently edit an episode of Modcast for the first time and I learned some interesting things like unit things are broken and don't have that ability. Which is why every time you upgrade a unit, it is no longer longer getting bonuses from what city it came from and it loses all of its promotions that come from things like the Matterhorn because it's actually deleting the unit and replacing it with a new one and not adding the modifiers to it so oh, oh does that mean you that. don't get the xp bonuses anymore from yes. building in that city i Ooh. thought you did because i i had a mod that actually showed which units have the xp bonus bonuses and i'm pretty sure that it did retain those as i upgraded the units in, in that case, the mod probably fixed the problem. Okay, maybe. Because you can set it to do it the proper way, but the vanilla game does not have it set right. Oh boy, come on, Frank. It doesn't tell you that either. Well, it's sort of like if you get a district pillar, it never gets its bonuses back, even after you repair it. Yeah. There may or may not be a lot of bugs in this game. <laughs> Just a few. <laughs> Identifying them all is challenging because the game doesn't actually tell you the rules consistently. Right. But the sniffing Brit said the game was perfectly balanced and not broken in any way. He said that about all the games <laughs> he demonstrates some broken crap with. It's great. Well, because every <laughs> game is perfectly balanced and not broken in any way. I mean, who would release a game that wasn't? Yeah, that's true. Is that a joke? Yes. 
Okay. I was I was a little worried there for I a second. The NCRS, every game I've ever played is perfect. Even yes, in the I... good old days of the 1990s when they actually finished games before releasing them, they still had bugs. Right. Yeah. But hey, at least the games aren't at least if 6 isn't bricking your Switch or console or a PC like apparently Anthem is doing to some PS4 players. So, well, good job BioWare. Yeah. Makes Fallout 76 look like game of the year material right there. Uh. <laughs> it's problematic, but at least it doesn't brick your machine. I just just enjoy watching all these AAA companies go flying into the ground and hope that Civ isn't going the same way. The AAA companies that are flying into the ground earned that route, though. 2K isn't that far away from earning that themselves, though. Recorded for episode 332. Speaking of really bad... Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. 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 How was you, Phil? Nope, you're not, not doing, doing it. You're not doing no, it. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. So, yeah, there's an article out here from the Strategy Gamer. The perfect strategy game for your personality. And it goes off the Myers-Briggs type indicator. So to make full use of this article, you need to know your Myers-Briggs type. Uh, I think I remember mine, but it, it's been quite a few years. So who knows if it's actually still the same. But they give like- game recommendations based on your Myers-Briggs type. And this is more for fun than for serious. Although I do note that I've played a good chunk of the games on this list. Like, there's only a couple I have not played. So maybe I just have all the personalities all the time. Because, yeah, like, I INTJ, like, they recommend non-aligned Hearts of Iron 4. Well, I've played non-aligned Hearts of Iron 4. Not as, like, a mere underling weak nation like Germany, but I- I've conquered the world with Iran. So, you know. <laughs> An underling weak nation like Germany. <laughs> I mean, it's World War II times, so screw playing as something like Germany. It's it's no fun to play as strong nations. It's just be like the Philippines or Iran or maybe Paraguay. Yeah. So, I mean, I could go through each of these. Like, they recommend Prussia for in Empire Total War for ENTJ. Or, I, the one I actually got is Competitive StarCraft 2. <laughs> I, I believe hey. that's my... I believe that's my type. That's uh, it's interesting. I played StarCraft 2 quite a bit a number of years back, but not so much lately. Yeah, I remember playing with you and Willow and both of you being having a lot better reflexes than me for that. I could just, my brain could just not absorb everything I needed to know fast enough to make fast decisions in multiplayer. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure in terms of timing. And then like and I got to like Diamond 1 before they had Masters, but I was nowhere like not even kind of close to pro. No, 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 no. But they just didn't have high enough leagues to represent that skill differential. So I was I was briefly in the top ranked thing you could be just because they didn't design it to properly differentiate real skill. But man, like there's a huge gap even between what I got to and what the really good players manage. It is interesting that they actually specify like how to play the game as well like you should play this game in multiplayer co-op you should play this game in single player you should play this game competitively it's not just the game recommendation it's also what mode to play in the game that's true because they have cooperative starcraft and then they like they they recommend for istps like modded rim world specifically (laughs) and there's one here that's the isfj defender personality style that they specifically say playing as the roman empire in Rome 2 Total War. I was going to say, I find it funny that they mentioned specifically one of the recommendations for Modern Room World and then another recommendation, Vanilla XCOM 2. <laughs> oh boy. <sighs> I have like a reflex reaction to dislike the provider, apparently, since their recommended playthrough is a diplomatically creating the HRE and EU for no, oh. no, <laughs> <laughs> screw you. I don't remember <laughs> what my personality type was. I remember it was I in 
something something, and I was on the on the border for all the other somethings. So. I forget if I'm an S or uh, or not for the second one. Because it definitely was like TJ. I, I took the test like four times, and I got a different answer each time. But the IN was correct every time. Yeah, I I feel like I've read before that this personality type thing had been thoroughly discredited. Yeah. It's kind of like astrology, though. You can yeah, just, like, if people think about do it, it like a horoscope <laughs> kind of thing now. It's like a, just a kind of a joke. Any kind of personality test or any kind of attribute test, if people already know how the system works, can be gamed easily. So it becomes very unuseful if you're dealing with somebody who has a brain. Like, for instance, right. if I was going to take a political quiz, I could very easily put, make it so that I came out to any ideology and any political leaning I wanted to, because it's very easy to game those things. Well, and and there's also confirmed kind of the Slytherin. <laughs> and, and there's also just the simple fact that these sorts of things don't really fall neatly into categories. They're all on continuums. And you can be in one category with a certain aspect of your personality and a different category in another aspect of your personality. Just like with politics. You know, you could be fiscally conservative, but socially progressive. So are you a Republican or a Democrat? You know? Yeah. <laughs> I just remember yeah. the one I took, I was 0% communist. <laughs> Oddly specific. Well, that was the most, that was the one that stuck out the most because everything else was pretty normal and then when communism showed up it was zero percent they called me liberty prime uh, i would just say that all of these games are pretty good so i recommend trying all of them out if you have the time yeah a lot of these are i've not played some but they're probably good Question yeah i haven't I haven't played most of them, but I've heard good things about pretty much every game on this list. There's like one or two that I Chronicles, Battletech. I had never even heard of Bad Divinity. North, so that's a new one for me. I've had friends play Divinity and like it, so it's probably good. But yeah, I played most of the rest. One of my uh, online forum buddies just released a whole bunch of information on how to just freaking break RimWorld. My gosh. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to like completely ruin the, the mechanics of that game and like trivialize it, there's some good stuff out there now. Recorded for episode 332. Well, if you want to talk about something else that's controversial, apparently some Civ players are going bananas over the game's EULA. Is it really the Yay. Civ players, or is it the people who are not the Civ players? I don't know, but apparently the... I don't know if it's the vanilla game or the new expansion is being review-bombed on Steam or something like that because of something in the EULA that says that uh, 2K and Firaxis can collect personal data, but according to these Reddit posts and the Civ Fanatics forum, the topic is called uh, Firestorm on Steam dash Causa EULA. It was started by Siv Xander. They're saying that apparently the collection of personal information in the EULA applies to people who sign up for like contests and things like that and not to just people who are casually playing the game. I think that uh, if you do something with the 2K forums as well from what I was reading. It's basically anytime you are trying to participate in something that requires them to have certain information to make distinction like contests, sweepstakes, more right. things that would require your name to per to specifically identify you. They have the right to take that. But if you are just playing the game or you are signing up for even a 2k account and they're and you're just playing the game normally it doesn't take anything other than just the diagnostic data that you're 
that every other game will take. Right. But perhaps paranoid because of the past Red Shell incidents. Some people are saying that 2K is turning into Big Brother and we nobody should play Civ because it's going to steal your credit card information and, oh, come I, on. and and file your taxes for you. <laughs> I, don't I don't think there's too many people saying that from what I was reading. I, I, yeah, there's they're, probably they're someone mostly, saying that. I exaggerate a, a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but uh, post number 11 on the Civ Fanatic topic by Ariok 4 is seems like a lot of people are actively searching for something to be upset about. And yeah, if you read the EULA, you're probably searching for something to be upset about because nobody reads EULAs. <laughs> it, it, it's a thing that's actually been kind of been complaining about it almost like for the past three or four weeks, almost like a full month at this stage. Like You, you can go on the Steam reviews, you can see the downvotes from as early as like the 23rd of January. It's like every 2K game has, the, has this going on because the 2K EULA changed back at the beginning of last year, I think. Last May or something, Didn't and it's it basically European nonsense. Pretty much, are, basically. yeah. It was it, basically what they did was, oh, look, we're going to put in the same boiler text that every other game company has, so we don't get in serious trouble if we have to take somebody's name and phone number when they want yep. to sign up for a contest. And our legal department says we just got to do it this way. And then typical large corporation customer service responded with stock. Uh, we're going to talk to our PR department about this and didn't actually do anything about it. Well, you're not helping. Now, that isn't to say that 2K is an angel. All these big game publishers do sleazy things but this is not one of those sleazy things cough coffee yay. yeah <laughs> you want to complain about loot boxes and microtransactions and you know pay to play and stuff like that complain about those things but them yeah. wanting to take your name and phone number because you entered a sweepstakes is not it's... 2k turning into big brother they just have the to thing... put it in the eula now because the eu requires them to it's the legal requirement yeah nowadays because yeah, they, they because in, in historical terms they have always been doing this. Right. Save your outrage been for something. me off lately, though. Save your outrage for something that actually warrants outrage. Because when you people cry wolf like this, it eventually just desensitizes the public and actually gives these big companies leeway to do actual sleazy things because people stop caring. I guess it's just more a case of their invitation being a bit bizarre. It, it, it makes me think of when Paradox basically said, we're locking off all the old versions of our games because they were not GDPR compliant. And I was like, that's just seemed silly. That yeah, was, that, yeah, this whole EULA change is also a bit silly as well. It's, I don't know. I mean, the, the review bombing over it is a bit of a nuisance. Like, it's something minor that isn't really all that important to justify maybe the negatives. Then again, I'm the kind of person who was saying that review bombing Metro was justified after it was moved to the Epic Games Store. <laughs> It's not like the act of review bombing itself is some like historically significant event, though. Either like, who cares? I mean, it does change how like Civ Six, and it's just the base game. This this bombing has not happened on Gathering Storm itself, but the base game has now down to mixed of recents are now 53% and overall 67%. Yeah, you just have to go look at the historical and see that actually it comes out in favor. Yeah, And then if you go in and you see that it's a recent mix, so you go, oh, this must be a patch thing or some other issue. And, you know, it's not a reflection of the game as a whole. Yeah, once you get down to the graph section, you notice that there weren't all that many periods of negativity. And in fact, the recent one, you can see that where the uh, the space of negativity kind of came in, mostly on the 14th and 15th, obviously right. just after Gathering Storm launched. Well, and the only other big valley in the game's reviews that I could think of would probably have been around the Red Shell incident. Which yeah. is what you in July, which is yeah. agree, which, yeah, <laughs> makes sense. Those are the big ones together. 
June and July of uh, 2018 have a lot of negative reviews for Red Shell. And neither of these things are actually critical of the game itself. It's all just behind-the-scenes political stuff. Like, it, it, the, yeah. the quality of the game never declined because of these things. It was just people were freaking out over privacy concerns. Yeah. I feel like the quality of Steam reviews in general is low enough on average that we should only barely care, but okay. Yeah, I only, like, half pay attention to the Steam, the overall Steam review when I'm, like, going through the queue every holiday to get trading cards. That's the only time I ever pay attention to it. Oh, uh, yeah. It's like if, I, if, if a game comes up and I see mostly negative, I'm just like, ignore it, next game. But if it's mixed or something, you, you give it a second glance because you know things like this can happen. Take a bit more than a cursory look, maybe. Or I, no, nobody's going to be like reading through Civ 6 and be like, oh, this is shovelware. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> or, of course, you see that mixed reviews and then you go quickly check your personality type and oh. find out that this game <laughs> would be perfect for you. Of course. Yes. Despite what these other alphabet losers think, this is the perfect game for me. Is it the perfect oh, game for you if you're trying to play diplomatically? <laughs> You're one of those types that diplomatically unites the HRE, aren't you, Mackie? You're uh, one of those. <laughs> Diplomatic HRE. Oh, you're funny. <laughs> we don't take kindly to your kind around here. Is it? Whoop. No, don't X out the window. Thanks. Jeez. I love how I try to switch to thing. Anyway, Kankathon, great name, started out a grievance guide here. It's still a work in progress. Uh, right now, there's a few unknowns, like they're not sure about nukes and the value of cities during conquest. But grievance has been gathering storms to place for war mongering. It's meant to damage your relationships. There's the there's a list here going on. The effects of grievances on relationship. A personal grievance, 20% of their grievances towards you is converted to a negative relationship, but that's capped at only negative 60, so you can't go too low, I guess. Uh, for every other living civ they have met that you have aggrieved more than they have aggrieved you, it calculates the difference between your grievances and their grievances, 10% of the sum of those differences, and that can't take away more than 40 in your relationship. Just between those two alone, you could get to 100, right? On the next little section where it's showing you grievances per turn, stuff from the ancient era is 10, negative 10 per turn. So it's like, if you if you tr jump somebody really early and other people know about it, they're still going to be holding a grudge late in the game. I, I mean, a, a significant... No? It's, uh, it's you lose oh, 10 it's each the, turn. Oh, that's... Okay. Yeah. I read it's that a, backwards. It's a decay rate. So if the grievance occurred in the ancient era, it's basically minus 10 each turn until it's gone. Okay, that's a little better than I, I had that backwards. That's after peace, though, because <laughs> while you're at war, you don't decay grievances. Yeah, because that's the next thing. Grievances per turn are set to zero by war. It's a nice sliding scale, though. So, okay, the ancient stuff will fall off faster, whereas when you're up in the future age, they're going to remember that quite well. Other modifiers, if you occupy their capital, it's three per turn. Occupy one of their cities, it's only one per turn. And it doesn't stack. If you have five cities, it's only one per turn. And if you have a capital, it's only three per turn. Which, why would it not stack for each individual city, though? I would assume you would want, from a grievance standpoint, you would be more ticked off if they had taken multiple cities. But, eh, okay. Possibly they found in a warmongering game that crew too fast and 
soured your relationship with everybody else too quickly or something. Yeah. Yeah. In which case, it would be effectively the same thing as the old warmonger penalty, which I don't think anybody was happy with. Then we have the personal grievances, which is individually pursive. A denouncement's worth 25. Refusing to make a promise is worth 25. Cost per transgression if you do make a promise is also 25. I am really surprised that refusing to make the promise and transgressing on the promise is the same. I would have thought that it'd be like 25 to refuse to make the promise and then like 50 if you break the promise. So if you promise not to settle near them and then you settle three cities, you get 75 grievances instead of the 25 you would have gotten for not making the promise to begin with. Okay. I still think the first transgression should maybe be worth more. Maybe like not 50, but more like 30. A little bit more or something. Because most of the time for the the city settling one in particular, you settle one city. I mean, how often are you making that promise than settling, you know, three or five cities? So I, I do think it's annoying that, you know, in that situation, it's as much to not make the promise as it would be to break it. Yeah, which is really gives me an incentive to just not promise them anything. Right, yeah. You do get the diplomatic favor if you make the promise. Maybe the refusal should be a little bit higher to get you to think about it longer, because I guess it also depends on how many diplomatic favors they're offering. Well, I think static amount. It's Yeah, I think that's even the same in all game speeds and map sizes, right? Throughout the entire game, so it never gets more expensive than 30, even in the late game. Something that I did find, however, playing a hot seat game is that making promises and therefore getting the associated grievances might not be possible between players. So I was playing a hot seat game where the person I was playing against settled near my capital and then I asked to please not do that again and when it came to that player's turn the diplo screen just had the text saying you know don't settle cities near me and the only option the other player had was goodbye they did not have the option to say yes or no or get any of the diplomatic favor and the game did deduct the 30 diplomatic favor from me for asking for the promise, even though the other player was not allowed to accept or reject it. I don't know if that's how it works in all multiplayer modes or if it's a bug unique to Hot Seat, but be warned, making promises in Hot Seat will be just throwing away your diplomatic favor. Someone actually uh, responded to you and showed uh, that you would uh, you could actually get double charged. Yeah, I don't think that happened to me. So there must be some weird circumstance where that happens. And this user actually had negative 30 diplomatic favor because yeah. it removed the 30 for asking for the promise and then on the next turn removed the 30 again and apparently the ui even said negative 30 and like that user wasn't allowed to do anything with diplomatic favor because he didn't even have zero including like vote in the first world congress right he couldn't even put in one vote because that one vote requires zero <laughs> diplomatic favor apparently and he had negative 30 so i guess the game Ooh. he had to shift enter the game, I guess, in order to progress to the next turn without voting in the World Congress. So there's a couple bugs there. <laughs> Just a few. Yeah, that wow. seems to be the recurring theme of this episode is uh, gathering storm bugs. Bug fest. But other than yeah. that, the game is perfectly balanced and bug free in every way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, aside from the several hundred bugs in the game, it's basically bug free. Getting back to the list. And these two values make good sense. If you declare war against a city state, if they have at least one envoy, that's 50 grievances. And if they're the suzerain, that's 100 grievances. In other declarations of war, a surprise war is 150. Yeah. Formal war, 100. Joint war, 100. A holy, holy war is only 50. Colonial is also only 50. Who else is 50? Retribution and ideological are. A golden age war is 25. Because you have to take that special inspiration or whatever it is. I can never remember the proper name for those. And a territorial war is 75. But there's 
five different ones that are no grievances. A liberation war, a reconquest war, a protectorate war, an alliance war, because, you know, if you're allied with somebody else, and then the war declared from emergencies, no grievances. I am annoyed that joint wars are still not treated like surprise wars. That uh, is something that has annoyed me since it was added to Civ Six because it's a surprise to the player who's being declared on. Yeah, consider we know the AI basically shops around for a war partner. Yeah, it's a get out of jail free card basically as long as there's you can find one other player to accept the joint war invitation. And I think that's kind of slimy. I wish that if you didn't have the denouncement from five turns prior, it should still count as a surprise war. And it would be nice if you could pick the Cassus Belli when you're asking for the joint war, but that might be too complicated. We have decided that we hate your face. Yeah. That's the CB. I'd say then after you've been at war, you start capturing cities. So the base value of a city is its population times 50 divided by X. And that value is somehow capped at 50. The X is still unknown, but the best guess right now is it's based on the era. And the era that it picks is based on the world's most advanced civ in either tech or civics. And they think right now it's locked in place on the same turn the deck of war is made. So it's basically starts ancient at two and you go up one for every era all the way up to future. So in ancient era, you get 25 per population, whereas all the way in the future, you're only getting five per population. I guess because at that point you would have a, there's a ridiculous amount of population. And it doesn't mean as much. And then there's also separate modifiers for capturing it or raising it. So the capture modifier shows the same as the actual war declarations up above the other list. But then... The multipliers are, is it, I think, yeah, these are, it's basically on all, well, almost all of them. Most of them are triple. There's a fairly steady thing here where a lot of them are 300 grievances for the raising, except under certain war conditions. And it's on the surprise war, it's 450. And liberation, what, liberation is 600 if you raise the city. Yeah, because the whole point of that CB yeah. is returning the city to somebody who got it captured. So if you take it and burn it, then, <laughs> yeah. Are you yeah. allowed to raise a reconquest city because it was like your city well liberation is somebody else's though and right. uh, you can burn those and i mean unsurprisingly that would be frowned on do you get in that case do you get grievances with both players the player that you captured it from and the player who originally owned it you should well you'll get at least some but i don't know if you get any special extra within the former owner of the city so if you it's the liberated city that you shouldn't burn although well, how much you should burn other cities is debatable but the liberated city in particular you probably shouldn't and emergencies are an exception to the exception in that the modifier applies on every city regardless of whether the emergency was to liberate the city or whatever. So if you care how much the AI likes you, you probably shouldn't be razzing all the cities. You, you do succeed on the emergency to liberate the city if you raise the city, right? I think if you take it first, because, yeah, it's just that would end it. That should end the emergency. You have to hold it until the timer expires. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, because I if you, if you, you raise it, you to. wouldn't have to worry about it being conquered back. That's true. So I don't know if that would count as a win or not, or I'd, maybe it is. You just it wins as soon as you take the city. I, I don't remember for sure. I've had. I I've feel done like it, it once should be twice. nobody wins, but I don't know. What's the next topic? Uh, there was more of the grievances. I mean, there's a lot of. Yeah, there's a bit more. There's oh, okay. a 
ton. Well, there's a ton here that's a lot of numbers, which may make people's eyes cross. <laughs> but it is a really good guide if you want to go through here and read it and get an understanding of how much in grievances it's going to cost you. A quick summary of it. Basically, for the rest of it, if you take the cities, if you then seed them, it doubles up your grievances per city. If you return the cities, it nets you back to zero. So depending on what you do in the peace deal, you get some grievances, more or less, after occupying the cities. And there are some global grievances. The biggest one by far is to take the last city of Aesib. So you can try not to do that. Also capturing city-states is 50, which in the relative scheme of things isn't that isn't that large. That's uh, three surprise awards on a target, basically. But yeah, 300% for taking up the last city of a Civ means uh, sometimes you should try to engineer to avoid that if you still care what the AI thinks. Some grievances are shared. They're either 50% uh, to allies, 25% to declared friends, and 25% for defensive. So grievances spread around. So if you if you're attacking somebody with allies, they're going to get more grievances with you as well. There's a quick summary at the bottom. If you are a warmonger, you should first take cities and emergencies since there's no grievances from that. Next priority would be cities you can liberate because that gives you less and then so on. And down to the, the point where <laughs> you can't even flip anything. So you just conquer all the cities and say, screw everybody, which is the most fun. What the heck? Okay, uh, this one's technically me as well. Uh, even after reading this, I'm not entirely sure how the mechanics work, but I can at least get us going. I, I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name who started the thread. Time mats for squares. I apologize, I've probably butchered that one. I had a string of these. That's Tiamats, Tiamats for Esquires. So it's something, uh, you love something for something. Tiamat means you love in broken Latin. Oh, okay. Huh, that gives me a new perspective on the uh, enemy in Dungeon Crawl that has that name. <laughs> you, you do not love that enemy. <laughs> Just saying. Basically, the third starts off, thought it would be similar to a great musician, but it isn't. As the Civic has uh, different mechanics and gave an example where before using Rock Band on Rome had 62 out of 115 torsos, and then after using it would have 65 out of 116. So it's, it didn't improve the turns to win by a great deal. And then after some back and forth, Victoria gives a pretty detailed uh, example of rock bands in practice. With uh, And it looks like they give you about 2,000 tourism. Depending on how well they do. Yeah, depending on how well they do. And I think the real good part of this thread is you hover over things and it suddenly tells you some stuff that didn't tell you before. Yeah, that is very nice. I wish they would be more thorough with that, but it's definitely a start. What it basically looks like is it's telling you that you have to have a certain amount of tourism with a civilization versus their culture. So it works kind of the same way as Civ V's culture victory did in Brave New World, but it's less clearly de delineated about what the actual ratio required is. Because mm. it doesn't say what the actual defensive value that you're using is. Because it says in there there's current culture, current tourism and lifetime tourism, but it doesn't tell you what you have to get to to win. Oh. So it's it's better, but not good, these tooltips. Yeah, I admit I never go for culture, so I'm not too useful in terms of evaluating this. But I, I have looked at the UI for it. Uh, to try to prevent losing to culture. And yeah, it's definitely not clear. We do kind of need a list of X things to do if you don't want to lose to culture somewhere. Well, yeah. it's pretty simple. You just build culture districts and fill them. And uh, attack the person who's leading in tourism. That too. 
Also, build lots of one. Build. Make sure they don't build a ton of wonders, and make sure their appeal is low. Well, it's pretty difficult to ensure someone's appeal is low without just conquering them. But the other things you you might be able to do without killing them, out, right? Well, the one way you would do it is by conquering their cities, building mines everywhere, and then seeding them back. I mean, that would be <laughs> that would be a very yeah. awkward way to do it, but it would work. Man, the, the amount of production just to accomplish. <laughs> I guess, yeah. If they could just, like, switch them back off of mines. Yeah, well, it would take them some time invested to make that happen, so... That's true. Yeah. But if you just hang on to the cities, they're not going to be generating tourism for the target any longer. So that's definitely an approach that will function. Whereas, you know, I could get rid of their tourism by just conquering them. Yeah. But then you get all those grievances. Oh, who cares? It's just a number. Although one could argue that... By conquering all but one city, you're taking away their ability to produce culture. Yeah, and then you can avoid most of the grievances from that last city. You can just flip it or have someone else finish them off. I feel like 300% on the last city isn't as big a deal as the 15 size 10 cities you took to get there. Yeah. Well, it, it, it doesn't count the capital each time you take the capital, though. I don't know. Because 300% on a new capital, if that's counting that, would be quite a lot in one go. That's true. That would be 450 points. And yeah, that's only spread, like, to a degree with other nations, but still. And if it's later, I mean, if you're going worried about conquering them for a culture victory, that's going to be later in the game where the grievances don't decay as fast as well. Yeah, Yeah, everyone's going to hate you, but it's better than losing. Yeah, what I know. about the Diplo system to this day is that, like, th- this does create situations where the AI will act against its own interests as a result of, you- of this stuff. And I just don't like that from a design perspective. Like, you are held, like, say there's an AI that's trying for space race and you stop a culture victory that would have won otherwise. Like, this AI hates you for doing this, even though you're technically helping them out. Like, you're, you're giving them a chance at all. Yeah, you're giving. I, I helped this guy not win now, so you have a chance to try and win. And yet, you're like, you're scum. It's like, yeah, they'll dogpile you with everybody else. Like that space yeah. nation should be just trying to win space. They shouldn't be throwing, but whatever. Okay, that guy's just launching his his expedition to Mars. But yeah, I'm a bigger threat. Okay, bro. Yeah, there's another threat that's not related to this too much, but there's somebody had the AI refuse to renew cultural alliance and they were then threatening to threat flip several cities. And so he declared on this uh, AI because he didn't want to lose his cities. And this counted as a betrayal emergency and like the entire world dogpiled him basically. Yeah. And that, while that's winnable because the six AI is terrible, there's pretty well no way to justify this from a gameplay perspective. At least some of those civs stand to lose Unless the player was about to win or threatening to win. If we if the player was not in the leading position, then at least some of the AIs are throwing by joining that emergency. I feel but the like, game doesn't care. I feel like if you're losing a bunch of your cities to culture pressure, you're not winning. Well, if you're relying, like, if that's a strong culture AI and you're relying on the culture alliance to prevent that issue and you're, like, further ahead in science or something, I could see it. I think it's it might have been. I think that thread was about Eleanor as the, a neighbor, which would make sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Basically, like, if someone doesn't want to renew the alliance, how are you betraying them, exactly? You're no longer allied. This is stupid all around. But my betrayal! Yeah, <laughs> the only the only way somebody should be helping Eleanor is if it's beneficial to them to help Eleanor. 
Which could be in some cases. It's possible. Yeah, I just make, I doubt the entire her, world benefits from that. Making her a even bigger war target if the AI is well, AI is not necessarily smart about that, but you know. I just I don't like the counter incentive behavior in AI. It's bad design. Like the AI is bad enough at the tactical level. You don't need to make it bad on purpose. On top of that, I should yeah. The AI should be focusing on its win condition and not be distracted just because a human player has piled up a ton of grievances. Unless or any other AI him. too, yeah, because like, that'll make it play worse as well. It doesn't have to be a human player being targeted by this. Yeah. It shouldn't throw like in general. I'm gonna chalk it up to uh, role playing behavior, which is acceptable but not good well if you want role-playing behavior then design mechanics that incentivize role-playing behavior and it's fine you could do it six just doesn't they want to pretend they want to they want the ai to act against its incentives rather than designing mechanics so that the incentives are what they want you to do this is all this isn't unique to six this is a problem in every single sip game without exception maybe except for like the, the very early ones because there wasn't a whole lot of nuance to them but ever since they started this role play crap, they've never been able to keep up with their design. And so they've always had a disconnect uh, in terms of how AI acts versus what the game incentivizes you to do. And this bears out in multiplayer because there's been a lot of mechanics that if you play in competitive multiplayer, you just never can use because they're not viable by design. They're, they're by design not viable. And then they put them in anyway. Like, come on, just, <laughs> just think a little bit about how people would use these things if they're trying to win, please. Or maybe maybe rework your victory condition logic. That's also a possibility. I'm guessing house rules are involved in some way. No, well, I'm talking about from a design perspective. Yeah, you can try to use some mechanics in multiplayer using house rules, but you're never going to fully utilize the game that way. Yeah, the way the Civ is now. There's just too many things that are degenerate. You'd have to like basically remove some mechanics to interact with others in multiplayer. Bit of a tangent there. That's okay. It's something that's, that that comes up often on the general discussion forum, so it just bugs me. Because the issue, like they, they blame the AI for this, but the, the the issue is the core design of the game, not the AI. When it comes to some of the strategic stuff, the incentives just don't match. Well, let's talk about Bug Ben. <laughs> Bug Ben, lol. Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah, over on the uh, R Civ on Reddit, is that the people kept telling me Mount Samus is the ultimate economic civ. I built Bin Bin. I got severely broke? Question <laughs> mark. And there's a screenshot of it that shows it. Negative seventy two thousand gold. Thousand per turn. No, that's not per turn. Oh no, we know his oh his economy. Oh yeah, he's still at plus nine hundred and forty seven, but he's at negative seventy two thousand in his treasury. It's like er what? Somebody suggested a stack overflow error, which I guess... The problem is the stack overflow error wouldn't happen that low because it would have to be like 126,000 and that would be assuming the the um, the stack overflow would be a 1 to 32. So that's not what was going to happen because he was at 80,000 gold beforehand. So they suspected that it's an issue with Big Ben and a bug. Because we know that you can have more than 131,000 gold. Yeah. People were thinking it's a cap, but that cap would show up for other things and not just Big Ben, so... Yeah. And we know that they changed Big Ben to be 1.5 times instead of 2 times the existing... 
Yeah, so they made it so it wouldn't, I guess they tried to lessen it so you'd be less likely to hit whatever cap they've got in there. Somebody also had the same error, not just with Molly, but with Coupe. He says, if, if Big Ben would put your goal over 100,000, the game bugs out and gives you that negative balance. And then the turn after that, it recesses you and starts deleting units because you can't pay their maintenance. How? So, oh, my. Uh, yeah. Because for one turn, you have a negative treasury until that until it gets to zero and then it kicks in with your like on that on the screenshot that's at the top you have the plus 900 per turn so that would kick in and then it'd be fine but there's no gosh if you built that in the middle of the war you could lose your uh, most promoted unit yeah that would be awful call in today in north america the number is 301-637-7659 that's 301-637-POLY. In Europe, 44-121-288-7659. That's 44-121-288-POLY. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows, or about Polycast in general, log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. We have a tweet that describes some of the original concept art for Civ 6 Gathering Storm. <laughs> Coupe! With several different styles of top knot. Yeah, and different styles for his little, uh, well, it's not a cape, but his little fur overhang there. And it was even a different color at one point. I think we'd call that, if it was a woman, we'd call it a shawl, wouldn't we? Yeah, it's sort of a fur shawl thing, but it's something... I'm sure there's a more manly word for it when it's a guy. <laughs> I don't know. There's, they went through a lot of face iterations for him, too, apparently. Yeah, yeah, because each of the top knots is different than each of the faces is different. But I believe that brings us to the end of the show. Yeah, I don't think we have any other topics. So on that note, thank you for joining us on Polycast episode 333. We don't get the repeating digits too frequently, but we do today. I'm the main team, and today I was joined by Mega Bears fan, who's not here. Go Eagles, lol, 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 lol. <laughs> uh, Canis Albinus. Oh, man. I, I don't know what to do. I think the, the Ospreys would be better, but I don't think they're a team. And Makalua. I hear all your sports nonsense, and I'm going, but it's only a week till F1 starts. Yes, by the time this is published, I will be watching racing. Tomorrow there's a race, though. Yeah, I know there's a IndyCar 2 starting, but I'm, I'm slightly more hyped because F1, because Australia, because things and stuff. That's fair. date March 9th 2019 Civilization 4 5 Beyond Earth and 6 Sound Clips copyright Take 2 Interactive copyright the polycast at the polycast.net <laughs>